states. I'll take this opportunity to pause and reflect that this land is acknowledged as belonging to the Gadigal people. One of 29 clans that are the Eora, the people of Eora Nation. Their lands extend from the north, the wide deep waters of the Hawkesbury, to the Georges River in the south, east from Kamei, Botany Bay, to the Nepean in the west. It includes the land under the buildings in which we meet today. I take this moment to think about their continued connection to land and waterways, the evidence of productivity and industry occurring here of weaving and tool making, of their meeting places and tracks, a place of sense making with story, song, dance and art. I pay my respects to the ancestors and elders of this land for their ongoing connection over millennia. I honour the elders and leaders of today for the continuance of culture and identity. And I give my best wishes to the young people coming through. With respect, we too care for this place, a land of community. The ways that we listen to each other and learn from my observations is through the art and science of storytelling. I'm Lisa, Lisa Roberts, I'm artist in residence here in the Faculty of Science and my role today is to facilitate a journey um, where we're going to share the different ways that we understand relationships between health of environment and health of humans. I believe that what we have to say is really important and more people need to know about the ways that we can generate knowledge as Indigenous and non-Indigenous people through the arts and the sciences. Great. Well, thank you, Lisa and um, Megan Williams. And I work here at UTS, just two floors below in the Graduate School of Health. It's our United Nations World Indigenous Peoples Day today. So I want to take you through Dadiri. Uh, my family, through my father's side, are Wiradjuri. And our country's Mudgee, and I'm very connected out that way. And Dadiri's not Wiradjuri but I was encouraged to use it when I was trained in the Aboriginal Family Wellbeing Program. Dadiri is from Miriam Rose Ungama's peoples of the Ropa River area, Nangi Kurunku, and that means, Nangi means word or sound, Kuri means water, and Kur means deep. So for her in her, and her people's language, this is about the deep water sounds or sounds of the deep. And so she encourages us to tap into this space within us for deep listening that's there, but that's often covered up by the busyness of everyday life and our decision-making and thinking and thought processes. 
So um, I've never met Miriam, but I know that um, other Gadigal people and people on this Gadigal land have used Dadiri here with her permission. Dadiri recognises the deep spring that is inside us. We call on it and it calls to us. This is the gift that Australia is thirsting for. It's something like what you call contemplation. When I experience Dadiri, I'm made whole again. I can sit on the riverbank or walk through the trees. Even if someone close to me has passed away, I can find my peace in this silent awareness. There is no need for words. A big part of Dadiri is listening. Through the years, we've listened to our stories. They are told and sung over and over as the seasons go by. Today, we still gather together and we create this moment to hear and to hear sacred stories. As we grow older, we might ourselves become the storytellers. We pass on to the young ones all they must know. The stories and songs sink quietly into our minds and we hold them deep inside. In the ceremonies, we celebrate the awareness of our lives as sacred. The contemplative way of Didiri spreads over our whole life. It renews us and brings us peace. In our Aboriginal way, we learn to listen from our earliest days. We could not live good and useful lives unless we listened. This was the normal way for us to learn, not by asking questions. We learnt by watching and listening, waiting and then acting. Our people have passed on this way of listening for over 40,000 years. There is no need to reflect too much or to do a lot of thinking. It's just being aware. My people are not threatened by the silence. They are completely at home in it. They've lived for thousands of years with nature's quietness. My people today recognise and experience in this quietness the great life-giving spirit. It's easy for us to experience its presence. When I'm out hunting, when I'm in the bush among the trees or on a hill or by a billabong, these are the times when I can simply be. My people have been so aware of nature and it's natural that we feel close to the creation spirit. Our Aboriginal culture has taught us to be still and to wait. We do not try to hurry things up. We let them follow their natural course like the seasons. We watch the moon in each of its phases. We wait for the rain to fill our rivers and water the thirsty earth. When twilight comes, we prepare for the night. At dawn, we rise with the sun. We watch the bush foods and wait for them to ripen before we gather them. We wait for our young people as they grow, stage by stage, taking them through ceremonies. When a relation dies, we wait a long time with the sorrow. We own our grief and allow it to heal slowly. We wait for the right time for our meetings with the right people present. Everything must be done the proper way. Careful preparations must be made. We don't mind waiting because we want things to be done with care. Sometimes many hours will be spent on painting the body before an important ceremony. We don't like to hurry. 
There is nothing more important than what we are attending to now. There is nothing more urgent that we must hurry away for. We wait for the right time, for the right way to be made clear to us. We don't worry. We know that in time and in the spirit of Didiri, this deep listening and quiet stillness, the way will be clear. We are river people. We cannot hurry the river. We have to move with its current and understand its way. We think if you stay closely united, you can be like a tree standing in the middle of a bushfire, sweeping through the timber. The leaves are scorched and the tough bark is scarred and burnt, but inside the tree sap is still flowing and under the ground the roots are still strong. Like that tree, you have endured the flames and you still have the power to be reborn. All persons matter, all of us belong. So those are some words passed on to us, as I said, for me through that Aboriginal Family Wellbeing Facilitation Training. So you can hear the strong voice of the senior woman in that. And yeah, it definitely makes me you know, yearn and wish that we had ours that are Wiradjuri, but I'm so grateful we've even got those words and I'll take what I can get, really, I suppose. We wanted to take this next moment to go around the room and introduce ourselves. So what is your name? Where are you from? And then also, what is your relationship to Aboriginal Australia? Will you start? Yeah. Thanks, um, sweetheart. <laughs> so my name's Ellen Karamanovic. I'm a Warramai woman, so um, my family come from Port Stephens area of New South Wales, um, but I'm living in... I Western, so. grew up out west, uh, whilst not a Wiradjuri man, I did grow up on Wiradjuri land. My, my mother come here um, with my grandmother and my grandfather to sort of like escape, you know, being taken. So, so, um, Could we have a microphone on Annie Fan, please? Oh no. I'm being captured. <laughs> okay, I'm Fran Bodkin, Darwal woman. I'm going to get nasty here, okay? We were the swamp walkers. My, my clan. We were the swamp walkers of the Sydney Basin. And we led all our enemies into the quicksands because we knew how to walk on quicksand. Still do, to this day. Right? So, just be careful. <laughs> tread lightly. <laughs> yes, tread lightly. What I want to do is I want to tell you a story, learning something right throughout my whole life, okay? When I was young, I was taken away from my parents 12 times but I found my way back each time. And one particular time, I think I was about five or six, Mum took me down to the bridge at Tempe, the railway bridge at Tempe. And at that stage, the Cooks River, the bed of Cooks River, was sand. It was white sand. It wasn't like it is now. Right? And she said, look down there. Look in the water. So I looked in the water, and there's these sharks 
in the water, just sunbaking. Well, what I thought was sunbaking. <laughs> and in this beautiful clear water in the sunlight. And she said, well, what do you see? And I said, I see sharks. And she said, look closer. You know, so, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, Mum. <laughs> and I had another look. And there were fish on the sides of the sharks. And the fish were dropping off and they were swimming upstream. And I said, oh, look, Mum, the sharks are having babies. <laughs> she said, stupid child. <laughs> so she said, no, they're not the same as the sharks, are they? I said, oh, no, 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 they're not. She said, well, what are they doing? She said, oh, they're stuck to the sharks and they dropped off and they swam upstream. She said, good girl, I want you to remember that. And I got taken away again and then came back another couple of times. And then one day she took me up to Liverpool Weir. And there, it was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. The eels coming down the Georges River were just pouring over the weir. And it looked as if in the river itself, we could walk across the river on the backs of the eels. There were so many of them. And I was really excited about that. You know, I thought, oh, wow, this is fantastic. And she said, what are they doing? I said, oh, Mum, they're just coming over the weir and they're, they're swimming away. She said, where are they swimming to? And I said, down the river. Where does the river go? Uh, Mum, it goes down to Botany Bay. You should know that. <laughs> and she said, yes, and where do they go from there? And I said, out to sea. She said, remember that. A few years later, Mum died. And, but it always stuck with me, you know, the, this beautiful a vision of the sharks laying there sunbaking. I used to think, gee, that'd be lovely, you know, be a shark. And um, anyway, I finally got to uni and I thought, I'm going to study sharks. So I did environmental sciences and um, the, the very, very first course in Australia of environmental science. And I enrolled in it as quickly as I could and we had a, an excursion up to Heron Island and there was a research station on Heron Island and they were studying sharks. Uh, oh, you, beaut. So I, um, one of the scientists that was there, he was, he was the major scientist studying the sharks at the time and he taught me all about them and that. And I actually, we had a hooker system in those days rather than the, the tanks on the back and the hooker allowed you to be underwater for 11 hours. And so I used to sit underneath the water watching the sharks and sometimes they'd come up to me. Then this scientist, I've forgotten his name now, he's quite good looking, but I was more interested in sharks. <laughs> and um, he asked me about why I was so interested in the sharks and I told him about mum's, you know, taking me to see the sharks. And he said, oh, I know what happens. He said, they go to the Coral Sea. And I thought, oh, wow. And I told him about the eels too. He said, and the eels go there too. So why don't we go and have a look? He borrowed the Sydney University boat, the Matthew Flinders, and we went out to the Coral Sea and there were the sharks eating the eels, right? The eels, and we looked it all up and studied it all, the reason they were pouring down the river was that the mature eels go out to the ocean and they go to the coral sea where they spawn and they die. And the sharks congregate to eat the dying eels. So that was a link. Now, what happens about the, the sucker fish? 
So I came back to Sydney and I uh, decided that I would go upstream in the George's River to see what was happening up there. And I waited until the sucker fish, it was time for the sucker fish to travel upstream. And I went up, right up to the headwaters, and there were the sucker fish spawning and dying and being eaten by the eels. And there's this wonderful little bubble. You know, I came, came back home and I was so excited and I made myself a bath. And when, when I did something really spectacular, I always made myself a bubble bath, you see. And I sat in the bubble bath and I was looking at these bubbles and the little tiny bubble it was so colourful and beautiful. And I was staring at it and all of a sudden it burst. And I thought, oh. And then the other bubbles filled in the hole, but they lost their colour. And then they burst. And then those ones that filled in that hole, they burst. And I thought, that's our environment. We harm one single little bit of our environment, the tiniest little bit, and it affects the whole rest. And that's where our stories are so important. That's what we have to remember, that our stories are really, really important. Even though they may be different up and down the coast or up and down the rivers even, they are still observations of what happens. she was talking about the shark and watching I had fleeting body memories of being in the seagrass underwater snorkeling and it was like okay I'm here now or never I'll remember this and I think Artie Fran put that idea across really strongly that You've really, it's up to you to never forget that moment. You know, my grandmother was part of the stolen generation. She was one of a big family of children who were taken away and it's only in my generation that we've been able to um, investigate that because it was banned from conversation. We were not allowed to talk about it. So this idea of the listening to the stories and then learning our own ways of telling those stories. We listen to the stories and then it's up to us to embody those. That's hard work. And in our culture, we're not encouraged to work terribly hard to know much about our relationship to Aboriginal Australia. We're encouraged to consume and tick boxes and perform to KPIs. That's a really big part of what we're all up against. My dad sometimes reads my work and so I do the Baz test in my head. My dad's name, um, Baz, yeah, I'll do the Baz test in my head. What would dad think if he saw this written Will he call me a wanker again, you know? And you mean written, what do you mean written? If I've written, say, an article for online or a peer-reviewed paper or a policy brief or a submission, I often think about 
yeah, people like my dad, you know, a general community member, Curry fella, maybe grade nine education, but very switched on. What would he think reading this? I ultimately think of him as my key audience because whatever he's going to approve and endorse will be good for other audiences as well. I generally write with, yeah, that him in mind. And then what's in his mind? Oh, yeah, he um, he took to my PhD thesis with a crayon and, yeah, circled a few things, you know, he thought were stupid or wackademic is the word that gets used. You're being a bit of a wackademic there, love, or going down a rabbit hole or... And what were some of the things he circled? Oh, you're probably theory about social support and really from a Western perspective as well because most of the literature is Western, Anglo and just questioning are there other voices you could put in here and then the family perspective as well don't forget the family members perspectives not just that individual so again that's real westernized training as a health service provider where you look after the individual but actually the individuals in a family context the family need to be prepared and cared for and supported You know, it's a, a profound thing that influenced me and in, in helped me get clean as well. A turning point in my life was um, I woke up one day, you know, um, yeah, hanging out for some smacks some heroin and anything else I could get my hands on and especially cigarettes. And I, I was looking through some, um, some landscaping for some cigarette butts to smoke. And um, as I was looking through the landscaping, the granite river pebbles, and I found a piece of Aboriginal lithics, like a stone tool right in amongst it and um, it really blew me up and when I looked further into this stone tool it's, it's what's called a Bondi point Bondi points were made at a very specific time about you know for about three or four thousand years and it was when the last glacial melt took place so you know I found this thing in the middle of the street that was being dredged you know raped from country down near the Nepean River landscape material dumped somewhere and you know like that tool was made and used over 18,000 years ago you know what I mean? And I found it in the street, and it was a really, yeah, it was like very profound. I've um, I've done um, sort of photography series on it since, um, you know, as a as a practicing artist, and it really was a turning point for me. It was really, um, I, I see, you know, for me as an Aboriginal, it's very bad luck to to pick up take things from country, especially stone tools, unless they're given to you by the you know the custodians of the land. But um, you know, I feel as though in myself, you know, when I was a homeless person and, and I found this tool and, and in the same way I was waiting to be found, you know what I mean? Like it was, you know, that the tool was something that was, it took, had so much care put into it and would have um, been so useful and, and, and had its place in a society at a time and um, discarded, you know, for thousands of years, I found it again. It's, um, I feel as though I'm giving them back the respect that they deserve. Thank you.
Think Health is made in the studios of 2SER based in Sydney, on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. This show is made possible with the support from the University of Technology Sydney and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network.